Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank you, Melody. Uh, a, a number of years ago, I called my grandpa from a Mexican prison. Uh, I'm serious. Uh, I asked him to write me or to wire me $6,500 for bail money to secure my release from that prison. Maybe you know how the story ends. I don't know. It actually wasn't me who was calling. A phone call was made, but it was not me who made the phone call. It was someone pretending to be me. And sadly, my very elderly grandfather at the time believed him, and he wired him all the money. My grandpa was a great man, a godly man, a funny, wonderful man, but in his old age, he wasn't thinking clearly. The saddest part to me wasn't that uh, like the, the inheritance was reduced by $6,500. It was that my grandfather actually believed I could be in a Mexican prison. Uh, come on, Grandpa. How could you? Uh, why do thieves target the most elderly among us? It's because over time, our minds darken. We don't think as clearly as we once did. Our processors slow down. God save us from making the same mistakes, but honestly, we probably all will. Hopefully, it'll be a little less than $6,500. So contrast that story with this one. I got a phone call from Wells Fargo the other day, just a few weeks ago. And when I looked at my phone screen, there was no caller ID. How did I know it was Wells Fargo, you might ask, if there was no caller ID on the screen? Well, it was a very convincing robotic voice that told me it was Wells Fargo. Uh, and it said, when I picked up the phone, it said, hello. Uh, this is Wells Fargo Bank. We regret to inform you that your debit card has been locked. Please press 1, followed by your 16-digit card number to restore account access. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, thankfully, there was enough light left in my brain uh, to see the danger and avoid it there. They wanted to steal. There's not $6,500 in my bank account, but whatever was there, they wanted to steal it. Um, the great thing about my grandfather's darkened thinking is that when he made that mistake, he was just a few short years away from passing from this life into the next. Uh, he knew and loved Jesus. Sorry, it's going to be weird this morning. I've never, I don't know how to keep my, 
my spot on the iPad screen. Bear with me. This is just like a family day, okay? Your first Sunday here, we're glad that you're here. This is, this is family Sunday where we screw everything up on the same day, okay? All right. Um, my grandfather knew and loved Jesus. And now his thinking is more enlightened than any of ours is right now. He made his way through the darkness, and he's now enjoying the eternal light of God's kingdom. Unfortunately, most of us will have to pass through the veil of darkness to get to the light. We'll grow old. Our processors will slow down and fade. But then Jesus will usher us into the light, but only after having passed through the darkness. Our text gives us a front row seat today to contrast the spiritual darkness and spiritual light. It, it describes the moment when the light of dawn first seeped into our world, when the first hints of morning light began to break through the darkness and new life was breathed into our breaking and dark world. So even before our text this morning that Melody just wrote, uh, read for us, Isaiah had painted a pretty dark picture of the state of God's people. It's very dark. If you flip back in your Bibles to Isaiah 1, uh, I'll put it on screen for you so you don't have to flip back, but it says this, My children have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. It's desolate. It gets even darker than this. Skip ahead to Isaiah 8. Here I am with the children the Lord has given to me. Isaiah says, to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn, no light for them. They will wander through the land dejected and hungry, when they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. So you got this contrast between dawn and darkness, light and dark. This certainly sounds like for the nation of Israel, like the darkest part of the night for them. Isaiah identified the problem for humanity. Not a problem, but like the fundamental issue with us as human beings. When he asked the question, so the, uh, the fundamental problem is identified when he asked the question, should not a people inquire of their God to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. So he's saying this is the light. This is the dawn for humanity. And I say this is humanity's fundamental problem that we, many of us, operate without the dawn, without the light, um, because we need an external source of light, and we can't make it on our own without that external source of light. It is only God's light that gives us direction and meaning in the universe. So imagine if there was no sense of right and wrong, if we weren't created in the image of God with a conscience. Uh, imagine if we just all kind of did what was right in our own eyes all the time. How much darker would our world be than it already is right now? That's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. 
dark would be without meaning. But dark isn't without meaning because the light has exposed the darkness for what it is, and it has exposed the danger for what it is. But if there was no light, we wouldn't know that we were in the dark. Hope you're tracking with me there. Clear as mud. It's not our light that tells us what is right from wrong. It's not something that is like within us inherently. It's not our light that can bring hope to the world and dispel the darkness. There's nothing in us that has enough power to do that. Hope for the world to dispel the darkness. We need some kind of external light to dawn on our world to help us see where we're supposed to be going. This brings us to our text for this morning, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Melody just read it for us. I'll read it again. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Skip to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Contrasting again, light and dark, light and dark. So the first thing we see here today is that the light exposes the darkness. Now what exactly is this great light? It's not the sun. It's not the moon. What is it? Is it just like a metaphysical idea? Is it just a spiritual idea? I think there's actually a more physical side of this light than you might at first assume. If you're familiar with the Christian Bible, you might just think it's just a spiritual idea of light, like of goodness exposing wrongness. But there's more physicality to this. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a theme that is sort of threaded throughout the entirety of the scriptures. It starts very subtly on the first page of the Bible. Genesis 1-3 says, God said, let there be light, and there was light, physical light. But how? Where did this light come from? I only ask you this because this light existed before God created sun, moon, stars, and planets. Those came on day four. But there's light before day four. What was the source of this light? Well, scattered throughout the scriptures, we begin to see an answer to that question. God is light in 1 John. God dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6. Even in the Christmas story, uh, we, you know, think back to those shepherds on that hillside, gathered there in the relative darkness, until suddenly, out of nowhere, a light was shining among them. What was that light? Luke tells us that the glory of the Lord shone round about them. In Luke 2, the light was so bright that it scared them. They were sore afraid, the old King James Version says. Jesus at the transfiguration had a face that shone like the sun in Matthew 17. Or think ahead all the way to the end of the story of this book, the end of this book. When John is describing the great city in the new heavens and the new earth, he says this, and the city has no need of sun or moon uh, uh, sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light. The glory of God gives it its light. And its lamp is the lamb. We could go on, but you get the idea. It's like a prominent theme throughout the scriptures. From the very beginning to the very end, God is himself light. And God invites everyone into his light to walk in it with him. It doesn't take too much imagination to discern what might happen to a world when they prefer darkness over the light. We are living in it right now. Much, much like Israel of old, I imagine. Our cities in the last couple of years have literally burned with fire, haven't they? Our cities are full of dejected, hungry, high, and strung out people. People would rather go anywhere than to God for answers. 
drag queens twerk for elementary schoolers, and it's like celebrated as freedom of expression. Many in our society celebrate the mutilation of children's sex organs as a freedom of expression. Our right to brutally kill babies, little souls, is not only allowed but celebrated by Congress with standing ovations. Racist rants in all directions and race behind every bush in all directions, on one end of the spectrum or the other. 2,000 years ago, Augustine confirmed this. He says, without you, what I am to myself, what am I to myself but a guide to my own self-destruction? He was so right for all of us. Without the light, we self-destruct. This last Tuesday night at our Advent gathering, I described the season of Advent as a season of waiting waiting for something to occur. It's a chance for us to put ourselves in the sandals of believers before Jesus ever came, before the cross, and to feel the angst of anticipation that they must have felt for the arrival of the Redeemer. They'd waited for thousands and thousands of years, and still no light. God, what's up? Where are you? Come through on what you promised. Finally it came, but the wait was longer and way more agonizing than anyone thought it would be. But we're not so different now, are we? See, though we're celebrating the first Advent during this season, and we love to do that, we live in our own sort of season of Advent too, don't we? Not waiting for the light to arrive, but waiting for it to return. That's where we're at right now, waiting for it to return. And on some days, it feels like things are just as dark for us as they were for them here in Isaiah, Isaiah's time. The world has gone totally mad, and it's because of our dark hearts. Not a darkness that's just out there, a darkness that's in here that we need lit up by the dawn of Scripture. We have hearts, our world has hearts that are unwilling to let the light penetrate our souls with hope and with course correction. The world shuts their eyes to the joy and the direction that the light brings. But this isn't, this, isn't this the special value of light to help us course correct away from the danger and to where we need to go. I've told you all before about my spiritual gift of finding Legos with my feet in the dead of night when I need to go into my kid's bedroom. But if I take a flashlight with me, it changes the game completely, right? It keeps me from the danger and it directs me to the right bed to help whichever kid needs help. That's what we see next here in verse 2. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. It's as if the sun is just peeking up out over the horizon. And for the very first time, the light is exposing what is around them and what is to come. And that is the best news here. And what do they see once the light filters through? the atmosphere. They see something amazing. Look down at verse 3. They see that God has multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, he says. So, number two, the light increases our joy. The light exposes the darkness, but now we see that the light increases our joy. So as the light begins to seep out over the darkness, it begins the inevitable process of giving God's people joy. And the light provides joy in two ways. First, it multiplies the nation. You see that in verse 3. And then it removes oppression 
verses 4 and 5. So first, the light comes to multiply the nation. So our Phillies made it all the way to the World Series this year, right? Good year for the Phillies. They had an incredible, if not like hugely unexpected run. No one expected them to be there this year. I checked the stats this morning. Going into the summer, they had lost eight more games than they had won. They were well below 500, as it's called. If you went to a game in early June when there were eight games under 500, they were like back when they were just a, a bad team, um, the stadium uh, would have been uh, relatively listless, I imagine, and probably mostly empty. But by the time October rolled around, and they were just a couple games away from winning the World Series and being world champs, you go to a game in early June, you go to a game in the World Series, and you'll know the difference between a half-full stadium that's for a team rooting for, full of people who are rooting for a team that stinks, and then the standing room only stadium in game three of the World Series. Just like a stark difference between those two experiences in that building. The energy level is completely different. There are more voices with more energy and more expectations to cheer on the team. If you're not into sports, sometimes I get criticized for talking too much about sports. Um, if you're not into sports, then just imagine the energy level of the cover band before the main act, if you've been to a concert before. Between the cover and the main, what happens? Oh man, the building fills up, right? The crowd multiplies and the energy ramps way up in that space. In both cases, it's more fun when the building is full. It's louder, there's more energy and more expectation. This is what the light will do when it comes, according to Isaiah. The light was coming to multiply the nation. You can almost picture it advancing over the darkness, calling more people into its glorious light. One more person, one more voice, one more soul, one more tribe, one more tongue, one more nation in the kingdom of his glorious light. Getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And with each advance of the light, more and more joy and more potential for joy and another voice to sing with joy comes as that light advances. This has been part of the special joy of being a part of a growing church, hasn't it? When new voices come in and they are added into the mix, we lift up songs together even louder than the week before. We sing at the top of our lungs. And it's just like a, a sweet, surreal emotional experience, especially at the front when you can feel the weight of a couple hundred saints singing the joys of their king. I'd recommend you sit up here every once in a while to enjoy it like I do. Hands raise, tears roll, drooping shoulders lift, spirits rise. And why is that? Because the light has come to increase our joy. And we get a special experience of that every week when we gather together as God's people. The light multiplies the nation, verses 4 and 5, and it removes oppression. So Isaiah gives two illustrations here uh, of wild, celebratory joy to describe the people's future happiness. The picture is that of a really good harvest or like a, a, a victory in battle. Look at the second half of verse 3, if you will. It says, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. That's like military language there, battle language. The light brings rejoicing, joy, and gladness. 
Uh, when I was young, very young, uh, my uncle was a contestant on the Wheel of Fortune, which was cool. Uh, he made it all the way to the final puzzle. Sadly, he didn't solve it, but he still won some pretty great stuff. And I have actually slept in the bedroom suite furniture or whatever that he won that night. I've slept in that stuff uh, very many times growing up as I visited his house. Basically, me and Pat Sajak are boys, is what you should understand from that. So, and Vanna, Vanna White. But you know the, the exhilarating feeling of winning something, right? Whether it's big or small, uh, you know that exhilarating feeling. You've probably seen The Price is Right before. If you've been homesick in the middle of the day and need something to watch at noon, The Price is Right is a good option. Uh, you've seen them win some major prizes or major cash. The feeling of exhilaration uh, that comes when their needs are going to be covered, at least in the, in the immediate time, because of the big sum of money that they won. You can picture them jumping up and down and screaming. That's the kind of exhilarating joy the light brings with it. So picture that. That's why I said earlier, it's okay to say amen. It's okay to clap when we are enjoying the Lord together. Um, look, uh, so what could uh, uh, deserve this kind of joy for the people of God? Look at verse 5 with me. It's in verse 5 that the bloody uniforms and the muddy boots from the violent battle are burned because they're no longer needed. There's not going to be any more battles. So they burn them in this epic bonfire. Oppression has ceased and victory is won. This was their future and this is our future too. And look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And how is this? How does the end of war for all time, the introduction of peace, the dawn of peace, how does that come about? Well, get this battlefield. Get a battlefield in your mind. And you've got two sides on the battlefield, right? On the one end of the field is the evil army cloaked in dangerous darkness. It's Satan, his hellish crew, and all the evil tyrants and big shots of history. It's a formidable army that you and I would never have a shot against, not in a million years. But on the other side, we see God leading out his army. And it's almost laughable what his army looks like. It is God and his toddling little boy, hand in hand. That's it. That's their army. Against all this, you've got God and a baby king. How will the good news of verse 5 happen, where all the accoutrements of battle are burned in a bonfire? How will it happen? Through a birth announcement. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. What a picture. One reason to believe Christianity is that no one could have thought this up. No way. There's no way. God's answer to the insanity in our world now and for generations past is not a big, impressive army. It's a baby boy. But who is this baby boy? Who is this son that acts as a light exposing the darkness and increasing our joy? He is the light that comes to bring limitless peace. And of course, we know as Christians that this light is Jesus. But how can we know, though? How can we know that we know that we know that this is true? Is there something here that like, might sturdy up our faith that Jesus is the Christ, the true Messiah, the Redeemer? Here's how we can know that a text written almost a thousand years before Jesus was even born 
was already itself talking directly about Jesus. I hope this stirs up a little bit of extra faith in your soul this morning. I, I borrowed this illustration from another pastor, but uh, he talks about this like, uh, uh, like playing the game of memory, perhaps with a child. I played with many a child and lost to many a child, even in recent weeks. Um, you know, the, the game of memory where you match, match different uh, cards that are turned over. Um, and you know that smug feeling of satisfaction when you flip one over and then flip the match over. I felt it, again, less than my kids have felt it, but I have felt that smug satisfaction. We'll pop back up to the beginning of our passage in verse 1. And this is the first card that we'll flip over. Uh, this is, uh, the year is 750 B.C. The reference is Isaiah 9, verse 1. Here's what it says. In the future, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee. And what is Isaiah talking about right there? Well, here's the second matching card. Get ready for that smug, satisfying feeling. Uh, Written many, many years later, almost 750 years later, Matthew says this. Now Jesus withdrew into Galilee and lived there by the sea so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and on them a light has dawned. What area did Isaiah say God would make glorious, specifically Galilee? And this would have been a surprise because Galilee was not like an important place to be from and certainly not a place where a king would come from. And how did God make Galilee glorious 750 years after Isaiah penned these words that we read this morning? Jesus moved there and his gospel light dawned there. So the Isaiah 9-1 card manufactured 750 years before its match, matches exactly the Matthew 4 card. God's word is an amazing book if you give it time and space to read it. Read it slowly and carefully. The Spirit of God penned the words of Isaiah before they ever came true so that you and I could have faith and confidence that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Well, as you survey that battlefield out in front of you, that battlefield with that little baby boy. We found out his name and his purpose. Verse 6 gives us his name or his names. Look at verse 6. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And then in verse 7, you get his purpose of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So finally today, the light brings limitless peace. The light brings limitless peace. He's the wonderful counselor. Jesus is God. He's the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Limitless Peace. We don't have time to unpack all of these titles for us this morning. We'll save that for another day. But I do want us to notice verse 7. It says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Limitless government, which most of us do not like the idea of, and limitless peace. No matter your political persuasion this morning, let's just take a moment to acknowledge that we are for the expansion of government if it is Jesus who is the government, right? Reigning for the peace and joy of his people. And he's the only government agent who actually knows how to secure this peace and secure this joy for his people and cause them, excuse me, cause them to fully flourish as human beings. Once this reality blossoms into full bloom, We'll never again be chanting, four more years, four more years. Praise God. There will be no end, says Isaiah. Endless years, 
Endless years will be the chant of all God's people. The government will be upon his shoulders. There's legit political hope here in this book during a politically depressing time for us in this day. We should live in this reality as we await its full expression. If you have strong political opinions, great. If you love politics, wonderful. But by God, love Jesus more and anticipate his government more. That's probably not hard to do. If our emotions related to politics overwhelm our joy in Jesus, it's time to reevaluate where we're at with our politics, guys. Don't rage. Rejoice. This government is coming. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. We're going to be like 50 billion years into eternity, and we're going to look at each other and be like, what could he possibly think of next? There's nothing more to do. We've exhausted it all. But of the increase of joy and government, there will be no end. It only gets better from here, people. What do we have to fear? In our weakness, the mighty God stands behind us, steadying us until we cross that threshold into eternity where the increase of joy and government will have no end. We get so accustomed to things getting worse over time, don't we? We get tired of songs, especially this time of the year, uh, especially Mariah Carey's songs this time of the year. Um, we get tired of food. We get tired of cars. I worked at Chick-fil-A for six months, and imagine this. I couldn't eat a waffle fry for many years after my experience at Chick-fil-A. Now that is like close to sin right there. Um, but we get tired of the amazing gifts of our world. I've since overcome my aversion to waffle fries. You'll be glad to know. But God is like, how about I show you a whole new way? The increase of the reign of Christ will ever only grow and get better. This is mind-blowing. It's like it's impossible for our little minds to, to wrap around. We can't fully understand this. God is explosively good in the dawn of the baby king. These are important truths to cling to when loved ones face cancer, when parents pass, when a virus rips through us and takes some of us and rips some of us apart, even relationally. When you're tired of being single, when you're frustrated with unwanted sinful desires, and all of those things, hear this, of the increase of Jesus' government, there will be no end. Limitless peace forever. Hang on to that hope while you struggle now, Christian. Let me encourage you to look at the Christmas light, Jesus, for your hope this holiday season and forever. Perhaps this morning you should consider where you have been, where you have been looking for light. What have you been tapping into to give you a little flicker of hope, of worth, of joy, of happiness? Maybe you've been hoping for a particular piece of legislation to pass or for the fear and strangeness of our current climate to pass, our, our current cl cultural climate. Have you done what God's people did there at the end of Isaiah 8? It says this, put it on screen, and they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. 
But hear Isaiah's words of rebuke this morning and repent. Shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If we do not speak according to God's word, there will be no dawn for us. To make sense of the sadness and to avoid its dangers and pitfalls, we desperately and collectively need God's light. Oh, we need it so badly. Seek his light this holiday season. I mentioned this song last year during the Christmas season, but it's like too apropos for me to not mention again this season. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote the lyrics of a song you may have heard before, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And he wrote that on Christmas Day in 1863. And the the song speaks of the irony of hearing Christmas bells during the American Civil War. So you can kind of put yourself in that place of history. There's like joy mixed with grief, light mixed with dark, life mixed with death, all ironic cocktails of good and bad. Longfellow's son had just been severely wounded in the war. Two years earlier, his second wife of 18 years, to whom he was very devoted, was fatally burned in an accidental fire. And five years before that, his first wife had died. He was no stranger to grief and darkness perhaps like some of us this morning. So these words come with some depth and with some painful scars. With bells ringing in the distance on Christmas Day and these realities haunting his his Christmas Day, he put pen to paper and wrote these words. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong, And mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Sin is strong. Brokenness is real. Our whole world seems to mock the angel song that Christmas night. But not for long and not forever, friends. Even if we don't know all the reasons why God allows evil and brokenness to continue for this season, we do know the ending. And so does this Christmas song. Uh, Wadsworth didn't end there. He goes on. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Amen. Thank you, Henry. Here's another quote from Trevin Wax. He says, The reason we hope for the grand finale at the end of history is because the little baby born in Bethlehem, flanked by animals and laid in a splintery manger, grew up to become the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knew suffering, not from a distance but up close. He didn't give us an answer to satisfy all of our questions. He gave us himself to satisfy all our hurts, to take away our sins, and to one day wipe away all our tears, to strip away our sorrows. I don't know if you picked up on it today in our text for this morning, But there's nothing to do, really, based on this text. It's all about what God has done. This is a relief, and it is pure gospel. God has done what we cannot do. Our only gig here is to fall into God's arms with belief and trust that he will bring this to pass. This is all about God coming down to rescue us from all the damage that we, as humanity, have done. 
He has started the repair, and we're just waiting for him to finish the repair. And he doesn't do this reluctantly. The zeal, the last verse in this text says, the zeal of the Lord has done this. He's not like, do you guys have any idea how much this is costing me? There's not that kind of spirit in him at all. No, God is not reluctantly gracious. He is zealously gracious. And he is so dialed into what we need. That word zeal there is a burning fire in God's chest to do this for us, to meet our deepest need. That's the same word that's used in Song of Solomon for the intense love the bride and groom feel for each other. Same word used in Isaiah 42 to describe a warrior who's like psyching himself up for battle. God is not dispassionate about you as an individual. His fiery zeal is what has saved you. God is on fire for everything we need. It's amazing. Hold on to your hope, friends. As sure as the light dawned in Christ, it will come to shine in full glory and full power. Jesus will return to reign. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And it will be magnificent. The zeal of God will do this. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Amen. True to keeping with the rest of this day, I have no idea who's supposed to come up here and pray right now. So somebody come up and pray our application prayer. Thank you, Brother Will. I think Will is praying for us this morning. There it is, it's on. Wow. Father, thank you that before the foundations of the world, you had a plan to redeem your creation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to come and fulfill that plan. That you became a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. And then you sent your spirit to guide and direct us into that light that you brought into this world over 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father of glory, that you would give each of us a spirit of wisdom and revelation, knowledge of you, that our insight would increase as to what the blessings are for your saints as they come to us in you, that your light would shine deeply in our hearts and expose the darkness within us, that we might grow in the knowledge of Jesus each and every day. I pray in your name, Lord Jesus, amen.